Hey everyone, welcome to Neuropod. Our channel covers all things related to Neuralink, but keep in mind Neuropod receives no compensation from Neuralink and is not formally affiliated with Neuralink in any way. Here's a clip of former Neuralink president Max Hodak from the first public Neuralink launch event. This clip will set the stage for the rest of the episode. I just want to talk about briefly that there's, like Neuralink didn't come out of nowhere. There's a long academic heritage of research here. The cochlear implant has reached millions of patients since the uh, 50s for uh, deaf patients. Um, over 100,000 patients have received deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's and essential trauma and dystonia and now other, other indications. And about 20 patients uh, have received the Utah ray, which is a little 100 electrode rigid uh, metal silicon device. And even though it's, it has very few channels, they've been able to do some really cool stuff with it. There's videos on YouTube of, of brain gate patients doing things like controlling tablet computers or even texting each other um, through, through Utah rays um, just from these, this small number of electrodes. And so there's and many of the people on the team at Neuralink came from this academic, like, this academic work. Um, I got my start working in a lab at Duke University studying the, uh, how mappings between uh, brain and, and, and like the screen space change. So if you make it so that the joystick goes, like the cursor goes sideways when you push forward instead of up, like how does the brain change the representation? So the point is that there are lots of people that have been looking at this problem from lots of angles for decades. And we're in the greatest sense building on the shoulders of giants here. The Utah array that Max references has a small number of electrodes compared to what Neuralink is aspiring for in the long run. However, at the time of development, the array was two orders of magnitude higher than had been possible for monkeys or humans. One of those people who played a key role in shaping how the field progressed from the 1990s to now is Dr. John Donahue. BrainGate's website has this to say about him. Quote, for more than 20 years, Dr. Donahue has conducted research on brain-computer interfaces and his laboratory is internationally recognized as a leader in this field." Unquote. For those who haven't seen our prior episodes, Bringate is interacting with Neuralink. Listen to this clip from the head of Bringate, Dr. Lee Hochberg. You may have seen the initial uh, disclosure side that uh, Mass General has a clinical research support agreement with uh, three companies that are, rel that are uh, relevant uh, in this space, if not more, uh, which includes Neuralink, as you just mentioned, Paradromics and Synchron. The, uh, so I'm uh, very fortunate to have the opportunity to interact with them every so often through the hospital because what we're learning in our BrainGate research, I, I want them to know. There's a young guy playing a video game. It's called He-Man. There's treasure chests here and goblins in your and Gamers know that they're not, they have another name, but I always forget it. So the, uh, they, he's supposed to hit these treasure chests. So he's doing an okay job that, uh, you know, if you know any 20-year-old kid that's a gamer, that's not particularly great performance. So this is Matthew Nagel, and Matthew had a, uh, uh, a what's called a C3-4 Asia, a complete spinal transection. He was stabbed in the neck. He has no connection between his brain and his, his body uh, because his spinal cord was transected. So he has this brain gate implant that I'm going to talk about in his brain. It's a small chip that's got 100 electrodes in it that uh, the electrodes are bringing the signals related to his intention to move his arm out to the outside that's being fed through a computer where algorithms are decoding it and the decoded input is fed into a computer and the computer thinks it's getting a mouse input and so he's playing that game by thinking about moving. There was a moment of, of true joy, true happiness. I mean it was beyond the fact that it was an accomplishment, uh, I think an important advance in the entire field of, of brain-computer interfaces, that it was really a moment where we helped somebody do something that they had wished to do for many years. This is the culmination 
of more than a decade of work beginning with science at Brown University that laid the foundation for all of the translational work that led from monkeys playing video games using their thoughts to humans being able to control a cursor in 2006 to ultimately to today's accomplishments. So clearly BrainGate had and still has a significant influence in progressing the field of brain-computer interfaces. In 2015, when he was asked about what BrainGate is working on, here's what Dr. Donahue had to say. So this BrainGate project that we're working on is literally to reconnect the brain to the outside world for people who are paralyzed, people who have had that connection broken, either by injury or by disease, such as a stroke or even ALS, as Stephen Hawking has. For the past month or so, I've started learning more about the history of this tech. And after learning more about BrainGate and how it was formed, I realized that Dr. Donahue and team had many of the same goals as Neuralink. I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Donahue, and in this short clip, he discusses the initial vision that pulled him away from academia to start a company called Cyberkinetics. When I started and said we're going to create something, uh, the goal was to, to take a person who was paralyzed and have them doing everything that you and I do every day and you wouldn't recognize the difference. That would be my ultimate goal. I'm probably not gonna see that happen, but if somebody does it, I'll be very happy. And here's the rest of our interview. He first describes how cyberkinetics got started. Hope you guys enjoy. My interest had always been in how the cortex works and particularly the part of the cortex called the motor cortex, which is a part that takes all the information that's going on in your brain and helps get it out to your body to make uh, complicated, uh, rich movements. And um, we knew in the, oh, actually in the 1980s, it was pretty clear that understanding what was going on with respect to movement would require recording from neural networks. And I did various things using wires that were not unlike what uh, Neuralink is using today, where, but they only had one site per wire and I, I was, uh, putting those wires into the brain and recording in the 19, early, mid-1990s. And then I realized that this was a difficult uh, and not uh, reliable method that I was using, especially since I was putting them in by hand, not with a fancy robot. And um, so uh, it was actually in the 19, and I don't know what it was, 1996, 97, sometime in that time frame, I went to the neuroscience meetings and I said, I'm going to find the best technology that exists so we can start doing multi-unit and array recording, multi-electrode recording. And I met Dick Norman at his poster and he had this wonderful device and we talked and I said, let's try to make this work in motor cortex. And uh, his student Ed Maynard worked between our two labs, one in Salt Lake City and one at Brown. And uh, shortly thereafter, we published a paper in 1999 showing that you could get signals out of motor cortex and you could make sense out of these signals with respect to movement. But others, of course, had already, Apostolos Georgopoulos and other people had already said that if you take populations of neurons, you should be able to, you can decode what's going on in motor cortex. But nobody had taken them sort of all at once. So we showed in 1999, we showed the array would work. And um, uh, Misha Soroya in the lab, along with uh, Nico Hetstopoulos and, and others, uh, then said, well, Let's see if we can, if we really can decode in real time, then we can uh, be able to have to read out a monkey's brain and have a monkey control a, a cursor and play a video game. And that was Misha's uh, PhD thesis. And uh, that was in 2002 that was published. So it was actually surprisingly a short time later that we had 
direct demonstration of uh, being able to use a brain to control devices and uh, that it was you know safe and it, it would work for a period of time uh, we didn't know at that time how long it might or might not last uh, but it was working long enough that we could do these studies and, and uh, show that we could re record many cells. So um, we said, you know, here's, a, here's our opportunity to be able to really help people. We said we can take the signal. We have the tool to get the signals in the brain. We have an understanding of how to make sense out of the signal, decode them. And we also can control things that people who are paralyzed can't do, like control a computer. So... Uh, with a bunch of fortuitous events, we formed Cyberkinetics, which was actually with uh, more technology people that were uh, and engineers at uh, Salt Lake City, part of Dick Norman's group, and uh, people that were together in Boston and some uh, uh, venture capitalists helped us out. So we were really the, the, the in 2000, this was 2002. And uh, by 2004, we were all ready to submit to the NIH uh, sorry, to the FDA, and uh, and get uh, uh, an ID of permission so that we could implant a person. And then, in, then shortly thereafter, we implanted Matt Nagel with a device and showed that uh, Matt could play video games, control a robot arm, a very simple robot arm. You, if you look on, on online, my favorite is he couldn't move at all. Matt was paralyzed from the neck down. He's a spinal cord injured patient with the uh, inability to move at all. And uh, what we, so he had, he just wanted to move something. So we weren't very sophisticated at that time. We were just beginning to figure out, you know, all the things we could do. So we got a prosthetic hand that could only open and close the hand. We laid it on a blanket on his lap and uh, we, we connected up a decoded signal and said, okay, Matt, you can control this. And if you look online, you can see the movie. It's, and so he opens and closes and he goes, holy shit, you know, yeah. <laughs> those are my yeah. favorite moments <laughs> that uh, he was he was able to, to move it. But in addition, we had him draw circles and, uh, uh, you know, do spelling, uh, use email, things like that. So he was really, you know, uh, controlling devices right out of the box. And probably the biggest limitation then was the control of the cursor was uh, you know, sloppy, I would say, you know, a little bit slower, a little and less accurate. And uh, so, so that was that was cyberkinetics was was busy doing those kinds of things from 2004 through 2008. And the problem was that uh, although we had raised a bunch of uh, VC money, that we we really weren't ready. With one of the things, you know, we had on the table a fully implantable device, and uh, it was in 2008 there was a big crash, and you know the money that was necessary wasn't there. And that was basically the end of cyberkinetics. They just couldn't sustain themselves. So two big events happened then. Then BrainGate, the research study, came back into academia. And Lee Hochberg is now leading that consortium, which includes uh, Krishna Shinoy and Jamie Henderson at Stanford and Bob Kirsch and Balu Lajaboy at Case Western. And uh, those guys are, that, that's a an effort today, a re, you know, the, the research, the IDE trial that's ongoing now um, is, is the, the sort of clinical work that's, that's been, you know, making breakthrough after breakthrough on what you could do with the brain-computer interface. And at the same time, the sort of technological components of cyberkinetics was picked up and became uh, BlackRock Microsystems. And BlackRock makes the devices, they make the arrays, they make the amplifiers and the devices that people are using 
as far as I know, virtually all the human studies that are going on in the world that are using uh, array recordings are using BlackRock's technology. So that was the, so, so cyberkinetics, although it had a, you know, a sad end, it uh, did give rise to two very important things, the, the BrainGate consortium that exists today doing research and development, and then uh, the BlackRock, which is supplying the field with very important technology. Um, so, so that's, that's sort of in, in a nutshell, uh, uh, what's, what's, uh, what's happened over many, many years. And I've been involved uh, both in those early stages, the formation of cyberkinetics, and then continuing on, especially with decoding uh, kinds of activities and understanding how to make sense out of signals in the brain. Gotcha. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in there that I, I want to go into further detail with you about. Um, sure. So one of the things that I had found in the research was Essentially, people are crediting you and cyberkinetics with the first implanted Utah array. Is that correct? In a human. Uh, sure. Yeah. In, yeah. In a human. Yeah. And uh, would you say that that's true? Like, do you, do you feel like um, you guys were the first ones to do that? Well, I, I never like to claim anything first, but it's, I don't know <laughs> of anybody else that's put uh, the Utah Ray in the human. The, the Matt Nagel was the first human to have that device. Um, of course, uh, Philip Kennedy had put a different kind of electrode, a few of them, uh, into uh, a couple of humans in the uh, early, in around 2000, a little bit before that, with just a few channels, and had an early version of a brain computer interface, which was wireless. Uh, and uh, so that, that was an early start uh, that, that uh, he pioneered. And then before, you know, so you said in humans, and I, you know, I'm virtually certain that uh, nobody else had put a, a, an array in human before Matt Nagel, his implant. But uh, uh, prior to that, of course, Dick Norman's lab, who, Dick, who developed this, uh, this technology, had put it in animals and was developing it. Uh, one of the main things they were going to do with this technology, and there's still some interest, I think it's been a revived interest, is to use it to stimulate in the visual cortex to be able to recreate vision. So in this case, it's not recording and reading out the brain, but stimulation of the brain to recreate patterns, which I think it's a, a really good idea to be able to help restore vision to people who can't see. I see. And so I guess in line with that thinking, if if I or whomever is trying to explain to a regular member of society that doesn't really know too much about all this, then does it make sense to call these uh, brain machine interfaces basically like pacemakers, but for, for the brain rather than something that helps regulate like a heartbeat, it's helping regulate different signals in the brain? No, because I think, I think you, you want to make a very clear distinction. There's two different interactions with the brain that neural interfaces can do. They can read it out or write in. So let's mm -hmm. talk about reading out. Reading out is listening to brain activity, picking up brain signals and trying to understand what's going on in the brain. It's reading, like reading a book. You're looking at characters and, and you interpret those characters as words and then give it meaning in sentences. Here, you're looking at neural activity and reading it out. So you're, why are you doing that? Because people who are paralyzed create those messages in their brain. They create words for movement in a sense. 
and but they can't get to your muscles because the pathway is broken, right? So either in the brain from a stroke or maybe in the spinal cord from an injury or maybe the nerves are damaged going to the arm. But in any event, you create the signals and you, uh, and, and, but yet they can't get to the muscles, so you can't move, you're paralyzed. And so in, in reading out, all we're trying to do is jump that, that gap, right? We go directly from the brain to whatever you wanna control. You and I sit down and we pick up our computer mouse and we use the mouse on the computer with our hand. Our brain is controlling our hand that's moving the mouse. We just went straight to the computer and skipped the hand, which we couldn't make work again. Mm -hmm. So, so that, that's the readout part. You see what I mean? And you can read out uh, sort of generalized signals that, with an EEG, which is sort of the up and down roar of activity in the brain, or you can read out the details, which the individual neurons have. They, they have detailed uh, complex messages that they're producing. On the other hand, you can stimulate the brain, you can activate it. And you, you mentioned a, a, a cardiac pacemaker and there's a pacer where the heart's job is to produce a rhythmic contraction. In some people, it can't do that. It's, it's something has gone wrong. So you put electrodes into it and you drive electricity out and stimulate the heart muscle and make it pump normally. Now that same concept was used beginning in the 1980s to say, okay, maybe in a disease like Parkinson's disease, where you're shaking and you're stiff and the motor circuits are not working properly, you can sort of kick that motor circuit back into working properly by stimulating it. And in fact, that was rather remarkable that you could even do that, right? That you could put a rather large macro electrode into a small target deep in the brain and start pulsing it at 100 times a second and now the, the thing starts working again. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, imagine a, actually now everybody has electronic emergency brakes, but in the old fashioned cars, when you pulled it, pulled a cable that put your brakes on. Now, uh, so deep brain stimulation, you can think of the brake is on in the car and you're trying to go forward, but you can't because the, the brakes are on and you can't release the brake. So you take a pair of snippers and you cut the cable. Right. And now, the, so it's, it's, a, it's equivalent in one sense of cutting the cable to the brakes and allowing you to move again. And it's much more subtle than that. And it is by a, a very fortuitous chance that the very complex circuits of the brain that are sending information all over the place, you can put, kick those into action by stimulating. So that's been done for Parkinson's disease. And uh, some of it's been tried for depression. So you can get a depression circuit that seems to also not be working properly and you can kick it back into, uh, into gear to work again by stimulation. That one is investigational. It's not, a, you know, not a, a, an approved use yet by the FDA. And then uh, there are many other uses like in epilepsy where again, you can stop the seizure from coming, uh, uh, coming on by stimulating. So that's, that's injecting something into the brain and they're really very different. You see what I mean? So, so you have to, you have to, so it's read what, what BrainGate does or write, which is what DBS does for Parkinson's and a bunch of other disorders. Gotcha. And so the, the read portion is not similar to the pacemaker and that, that's no. So, so in fact, uh, just to be clear, the, the DBS was actually called a pacemaker for the brain because oh, really? it's stimulating. Oh. Well, well, that's because the, the pacer is a little, what's called an IPG, an implantable pulse generator. 
is virtually the same device for a cardiac device and for DBS, and they're made by the same companies. And so, so you're, you're turning pacing the heart, and it, which is some, it's a slower frequency, and you're turning that into a frequency of pacing the brain by stimulating. And it really doesn't pace the brain as much as turn off the circuit, but, but it has been called the pacer for the brain. So stimulation devices have been called brain pacers. Gotcha. Okay. Understood. Um, and so let's see, you talked a little bit about like the, the different technologies and how they got split up from cyberkinetics to eventually becoming BlackRock Microsystems and uh, now Bringate. And I, I saw in some of the articles that you guys were able to license or some other way use different technologies that were considered proprietary. And I'm curious how you were able to get access to some of those like decoding, decoding algorithms or other types of proprietary technology. No, there was nothing proprietary. In fact, we, I think I can say that we invented all the things. So there were two classes of things. Decoders were public. They were, they were scientists uh, like Andy Schwartz and uh, Postulus Georgopoulos or other people, Richard Anderson or things. They were publishing the way they were decoding information. So once it's published, it is uh, in the public domain. Anybody can use it. We actually working with Liam Paninsky and uh, other mathematicians at, uh, at Brown, uh, Michael Black and Ellie Bienenstock, uh, we were able to uh, develop our own uh, methods and uh, some of those we patented. So we, we actually held or hold patents on the ways of decoding. Uh, but, but really we developed a lot of those and we used our own uh, device. We didn't have to uh, get uh, licenses from anybody. Uh, the other thing is when you're doing academic research, of course, people allow you to use even proprietary things. It, it, you know, usually it's, it's customary to allow researchers to go ahead and use those kinds of things because you're not a for-profit business. You're trying to advance knowledge. Gotcha. Okay. So I can say as far as the electrodes, well, the electrodes were part of the University of Utah. So in that sense, we did license it from the University of Utah, but Dick Norman was part of the company. So that wasn't a, you know, especially, uh, it wasn't a difficult thing, uh, as I said. So there was the technology, there was the, um, uh, the, the decoding we had, and then the rest of the system we developed was all, right. and, and pretty much a lot of what we developed is still used in BrainGate or by everybody else today, you know, all that, that hardware. Okay. Gosh, I got to get my, my facts right. <laughs> I, I, I've been <laughs> like reading, actually. Um, no, I, I realized that a lot of this history is not known. And by the way, I want to be very clear. I don't want it to come across that we were the only ones doing this. There were a number of other people working in the field and other people making important breakthroughs and contributing. And everyone was uh, exchanging this information. There was an annual meeting, which is still held, but it was a, it was a different form of meeting every year, the neural prosthetics meeting um, by uh, Bill Heathworks was a person at the NIH who was very important at bringing everybody together. He in fact helped to develop and promote the development of the cochlear implant. And uh, Bill would bring everybody together and people would get together and talk about what they were doing and share information and say, what, where is the field going and what can we do? Uh, and so there was a lot of, a lot of communication in the field and, and that helped generate activity. I see. I see. Um, 
Well, so a lot of these technologies that you guys were working on, you said basically the end of the 90s till 2002 or so. Um, can you talk about towards the end of cyberkinetics, like what that was like and what it felt like to run a public company, what it felt like to go raise money, have investor calls and just communicate to the public, like here's the potential mm -hmm. for the future, here's what we're working on now and here's what we're building off of. Yeah, well, well when I started, I was very naive and uh, I had help in particular from a very bright undergraduate who's now a Caltech faculty member, Mikhail Shapiro. And we literally, he was, uh, oh, only 20 years old at the time, I think. And the two of us would go around giving pitches to people. And most people, I think, thought we were crazy. Uh, but eventually, we, uh, you know, we managed to get uh, venture capital. We got, we got some investment. And, uh, you know, then it was a company. And I was not the CEO. There was a, there was a real CEO and, uh, you know, a whole staff of people. Uh, and, and we actually did eventually go public. Uh, to try to sustain the company. But as I said, the, the, you know, both, I, I do think cyberkinetics was very early. I mean, I'm excited to see things like Neuralink, what, which is pushing the field forward and you know, beginning to realize what was my dream of, of successfully providing this technology to people who need it. Um, and uh, so, so uh, you know, it, was, it was very hectic you know, to run a company in those days. We both had to convince people of the merit, uh, we had, I think, very compelling results. You know, we had, we, one of the things that was very interesting is we showed that people that had strokes, people that had spinal cord injury, and people that had ALS, which is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, where their motor neurons degenerate. They're all completely different ways of becoming paralyzed. But in every case, those people could control computers with their brain. And so it was, that was a really important medical discovery, I think, that to say that there was promise for everybody to be able to, to use brain-computer interfaces. So I, I was very sad when, uh, you know, that we, we couldn't sustain this because, uh, you know, it, it, as you know now, everybody knows, it's, it's very resource-intensive. And, uh, you know, simply research grants alone are not enough to sustain the activity. Clinical trials are very expensive. They're very complex. Uh, and the technology is expensive and complex. And you need to bring together clinicians and engineers and neuroscientists all working together to sort of to make the product actually suitable for, for patients. For people that need them and it, that's a really big effort and you know those groups are not used to working together and that was one of the things that we worked very hard on having a culture that promoted you know people from the business world and people from the science and academic science engineering and clinical world all working together for a common purpose and everybody in cyber clinics was really dedicated to the goal of really helping people I see is it well, so I don't know if you've been following recently, but there's a lot of talk in the news about SPACs and different companies that will merge with other companies who truly do not too much. And then it's a quicker way to access the public markets. And it sounds like that's essentially what you guys did. With we, we, well, I'll tell you that actually. Yeah. So, so that was probably a mistake, uh, but okay. we, we actually did. It was then called the reverse merger. And uh, we became for, a, I think, a few hours Trafalgar Mines, 
because we reversed merged into Trafalgar Mines, which made us public. But once you become public, there are so many regulatory uh, requirements that you eat up huge amounts of resources uh, to run the company. Accounting is much more strict. And so the, the company was basically, you know, hemorrhaging money to manage the, all the financial regulatory requirements. And I, I think, uh, you know, startup companies should stay private as long as they can, even though the public markets can generate a lot more revenue. Um, you know, uh, and also I think, you know, the fact that we were in the 2008 timeframe when there was a big crunch in the markets, the, there, there, were, there were no roots left to raise the money that was needed. Gotcha. And up until going public, how did you guys raise funds? It was VC money. So we had investors that, that was all venture money investors uh, who, who uh, we raised quite a bit of money. I don't remember the total amount we raised, but it was quite a bit. And, uh, but it was still, you know, small by, even by today's standards, it was, it was small in terms of what we needed to get done, you know, which I think the, you know, we had, we had, you know, created an array. And uh, so we were able to record signals very nicely uh, and, uh, you know, use those signals to control things, but uh, we did not have a fully implantable device. And that's, um, you know, without it being wireless, it's difficult because patients need to move around in the world and having the, 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 the brain gate device we're using then and still to some extent until the paper you saw recently about wireless mm -hmm. stuff with it, with it being wired, you know, you've got these big cables coming, connecting to the connector on the head and that's really cumbersome and not suitable for use in the home. Now that, uh, you know, the new paper that uh, Hochberg and the, the brain gate group published uh, show that, you know, you can have, even, even if you still have a pedestal on the head, that uh, people can actually function in their home environment using this device. So that's a big step towards making sure that, the, you know, making progress towards a, a suitable device. All of these advances are important that, to having something that can be used by people to help them, uh, you know, live a more independent life and do what they want to do when they want to do it. And I assume that this was something that they were working on prior to COVID, but now that COVID had kind of come around, it probably accelerated that effort to make sure that the wireless. Yeah, nothing in this field happens in a year, right? It's, it's a okay. very long. So, so uh, this really is part of, so we, and that is me working with Arto Nermiko and with us, uh, Lee and, and others, but but really it was Arto Nermiko and, and his student Dave Borton, who uh, made the first high bandwidth fully implantable device. I don't remember the year they put that up, but this now seven or eight or more years ago. So that's a, a hundred channel full bandwidth uh, implantable device. And that device, so they they tested, they built it, they tested it in animals, and. Um, uh, it, it's uh, sort of uh, available to be finished for humans, but it's not been in a human yet. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, when, when the article came out, I, I was pretty excited because I think, that, you know, it's just like any progress that can be made towards this grander vision is, is just super cool. Uh, yeah. So what I didn't finish saying, other just to finish is, the, 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 the device that was in the paper shows um, a device that is screwed onto the pedestal, the, the plug on the head. 
that's a little wireless device. It's a tiny device. And the reason it's a tiny device is because it is the electronics for the fully implantable device. And so this was a step to show that it worked. You see what I mean? So the implantable device has electronics inside a can. And basically this was the electronics without the can on the head, but not inside. So it was a step in the right direction, but it's the same electronics that will be in the can for, uh, for high resolution recording. Okay. So what is the, what is the like end result? What, what, what's the vision? With oh, a fully implanted. Uh, well, the next step would be to put that to implant that system under the skin, and that it would be a fully implanted system that's totally wireless. So with the, the current device, the paper that just came out shows that the electronics that have been produced will work, they will record signals, they will record high bandwidth, and they will transmit them wirelessly into the environment where they can be picked up and converted into control signals, and a human can use that system. Which in theory is like, is possible. You, you just like put this thing that's on your head and then you put it inside and in theory, it all works the same, but I assume yeah. that's not that easy. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always, there's always something, you know, you, you have to be very careful to make sure. And that's that, you know, what, what has everybody done? They start with, you know, on the bench, can you make the electronics, right? Step one, can you build it? Step two, you know, can you put something in an animal model to see whether it does what you think it does? You know, does the electrode array record neurons? Does it, can it pick up the signals? Does the circuitry work the way you think it does? Does it, does it work in the environment to, uh, you know, when there's lots of other strange signals around, can you detect it? So, so the, the usual approach for something like a, a human device is to do this in a stepwise fashion, you know, engineer it, test it in an animal model, make sure it's safe, which is first and foremost, and then and make sure that it does what you want it to do because you don't want anything to go wrong and uh, you know to, to uh, ever place a human in jeopardy in any way. So you want to be extremely careful that these devices are safe first and foremost. Sure. Um, so in the latest update event, I think Neuralink announced 1,024 electrodes. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm curious what your take is on like how much more access to information and data they'll be able to get. And what do you think are some of the possibilities that they'll be able to unlock that some other companies have not been able to do? Well, I don't think that's a company issue. That's a science question. The que I think the question you're asking is how many channels do you need to understand the brain? Is that what you're asking? The Yes. Yeah. So that depends on your theory of how the brain works. You know, if it's if it's five binary switches, you need crude electrodes and five of them. But if it's millions and millions of channels working together, you might need millions. But I think, you know, you're, you're there. The people are not going to have millions of wires inserted into their head. Now, people may disagree with that, but I actually don't think that that's a, a practical solution. We actually are working on a solution that I can't talk about that I think is incredibly clever. My student uh, is, is working on it, my collaborator now, and uh, he's got a, a clever way to get around all this. But, uh, but, in, but uh, uh, what a tease. Absent that, the, 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 I think that, you know, what we do know now is that lots of neurons work together 
and they do interesting things when they get together, just like, you know, football teams, soccer teams, uh, crowds of people, you know, lots of interesting things happen, sometimes unexpected things. Uh, when when it, it, groups of people or groups of neurons get together. And now the question is, how many of them do you need to sample in order to reveal what's actually going on? Um, and uh, so the answer is certainly more than one. And, uh, you know, it could be, the answer could be, if you really truly want to know everything that's going on in your brain right now, you might need to record from every neuron. But I don't know how to do that. I don't think anybody does. You know, there's no way to do that. So the really interesting one is how many can you sample to get a sense of what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And we know now that with, with uh, you know, we now use 100 or 200, and some people have used up to 1,000 electrodes in uh, for, uh, with the Utah BlackRock arrays. But typically in people, it's 100, 200, maybe 400, or up to 400, I think, electrodes. And those... Um, you can really learn a lot about what's going on. You know, we showed in, in monkeys uh, that uh, you can decode from one little patch of the brain, you can decode the entire action of the arm. So you can, you know, the fingers, the hand, the wrist, it was a, a very nice paper in 2010 by Carlos Vargas Irwin in my group that showed that you can decode everything about the hand, not perfectly and, and it's in real time, it would operate slowly but it, it's all there. And so I guess you need more neurons to maybe make it faster or to make it a little more accurate. But I think that's a very important scientific question of how many neurons do you need? And we don't really know. But Did- I know, I know a few, uh, what's surprising is for any particular movement, like if I just want to open and close my hand, mm-hmm. if you catch the right neuron, it can, you could do it with one neuron. That's all you'd need. But typically, you know, uh, because the one neuron might be, not be so reliable, just a, a dozen or two dozen or three dozen would be enough. I see. Do if you, you think... want to do more things, you need more neurons. That's the... Sure, sure. Yeah. And do you think like a pathway to finding out what that answer is to really having a better sense of how many neurons are required to have specific detailed uh, output do you think that can be found out by just trial and error over time? Like somebody puts in and is able to record from a certain set and then you just see how the human behaves or see like- Oh, well, no, no. So let's, yeah, back up. So, so the question is, can you answer this question? First of all, you don't have to do this in humans. For example, uh, Sergei Stavitsky and Eric Troutman are working with neuropixel electrodes. Each electrode there has about a thousand sites per electrode. Uh, and I think at any one time you can record 394 and you can put those into the brain of a monkey and you can record at a density higher than anybody's ever recorded before with these neuropixel electrodes. And with that very high density recording, I think you can, you can get a sense of the, the nature of the code. How densely do you have to sample? That's what they're working on, you know? And so we'll, we'll know the answer, I think, in the next few years of what density is necessary to give you the kind of information you need to make a very successful brain computer interface. So and that can be done in animals. I mean, all of the animal work, the, the work, especially the monkey work is extremely important to lay the groundwork. So we know what's going on. So then we, when we first showed that humans could control cursors and type and move robots, 
all of that was based on principles that we had learned from able-bodied monkeys. Basically, you know, we call it playing video games, but doing things, you know, mm-hmm. doing complex motor behaviors. We learned all, all the rules. I think if we had strictly gone in in the dark and started recording in humans, we wouldn't know what to do. I see. You know, we would be, we'd be lost. We had to have that important scientific foundation behind all of this before we, before we went in. So when we went in, we knew basically what to do to make sense out of the signal. Gotcha. Um, so <laughs> uh, I'm trying to, okay. So I'll ask you a question about um, like where you're currently at right now. It, um, are you formally affiliated with Bringate still? Or do you uh, just yes, I'm in a, so, so I spent uh, a number of years uh, recently on a leave from Brown helping to set up something called the VIS Center for uh, Neuroengineering in uh, Switzerland. Uh, it's part of EPFL, which is a, another leading place in development of neural prosthetics. Uh, they're working on things like devices to restore locomotion, walking in people who are paralyzed. And uh, uh, Gregor Cortine's group and a bunch of his very talented collaborators there are all uh, working to uh, you know, with really remarkable success to help people walk again who have had spinal cord injury. And that center was set up to help promote that research. And I was, uh, I I was, you know, honored to be able to go there and help set it up. And it was fun to live in Europe and then fun to interact with a different group of scientists because I had been at Brown all my career. And uh, then I, I had agreed to do that for five years and then come back to Brown, which I was very excited to do. So I, I did that. That's all set up and running. It's a, it's a wonderful place. If you ever get to go to Geneva, Switzerland, you can see this place called Campus Biotech, which is one of the most magnificent neuroscience centers on, on earth. It's really beautiful. Uh, and it's also a hotbed of science. So I, I came back to Brown after I, I set up the center there. And uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, Lee Hochberg is really the person who is running and organizing and maintaining a very complex consortium that's really, he's doing an excellent job of running that collection of, as I said, uh, Krishna Shinoy, Jamie Henderson from Stanford, uh, Balu Ajaboy from Case Western, really superb people. And they work together and, and the, the series of, of findings that have been emerging over the past, I don't know, five years or so, you, you know, improvements in decoding, better control, rapid communication, spelling, those kinds of things, typing, uh, those, those, all those advances have come out of that group. And uh, so I'm, I'm back as a member, which is kind of a fun position to be in. Um, and then uh, I have my own lab, which is using non-human primates as well as working with the human group uh, to, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm back to sort of understanding how the brain works, how does the cortex make you smart, how does it function, and then also how to apply that information in, in improving brain-computer interfaces. So I'm uh, contributing in various places in that whole effort. And that's pretty standard for what a member would do? Well, yeah, some people are, are leaders in running uh, human trials, you know, so specific things like uh, testing the ability uh, to improve the rate of communication when somebody is typing or, you know, communicating by spelling uh, or controlling uh, their own arm. I, as you know, in uh, 2017, I think we showed that uh, a person 
can control their own arm with by using the signals from the brain and connecting it to an FES system, a functional electrical stimulation system, basically stimulators in the arm, um, and and move their and move their own arm. And in fact, that you know when when I when I started and said we're going to create something, uh, the goal was to to take a person who is paralyzed and have them doing everything that you and I do every day and you wouldn't recognize the difference. That would be my ultimate goal. I'm probably not gonna see that happen, but if somebody does it, I'll be very happy because that was my goal. And it actually started uh, with a discussion with Hunter Peckham, who really was the person who created the wonderful environment at Case Western. Uh, when, and he was, it is still working on FES systems. That is systems that stimulate nerves and muscles and help people move their limbs. And at that point, he didn't care where their control signal came from. If it helped the person walk or it helped the person move their arm. Uh, they even had a woman who could wiggle her ears and trigger movements, you see, of her arm mm -hmm. by taking the muscle signals and using those as commands. And so we said in the 1990s, we're the perfect match. I want to control the body with the brain where I'm the brain guy and you want to control the body with stimulation and you're the muscle and arm guy. So let's mm -hmm. put it together and make it all work. You know, I, I'll do the brain half and, uh, and you'll do the body half. And uh, so it, it wound up in 2017, we had the proof of concept of that idea that, was, that we sort of had in an informal conversation in the 1990s which is kind of scary to see how long it took <laughs> to happen. But it's, it's a really big deal to watch that video of a person thinking about, you know, reaching out and grabbing a cup and taking a drink on their own when they can't, and they did it. And so I think that's now on the path of happening. If it'll, you know, I, I want to see it so that that person can do anything they want at any time. They can go play basketball or, you know, go for a, a walk with their family or so, but that's, you know, still quite a ways off and there's still a bunch of technological feats and scientific advances that are still uh, need to be done to get to that point. Gotcha. Yeah, I think I saw somewhere, one of the initial goals was to have somebody be able to play basketball after they were paralyzed. Yep. Yeah, I used to show up in my beginning of my talk, I used to show Obama playing basketball and I'd say, I want him to play basketball with somebody who's paralyzed and not know they're paralyzed. Yeah. It would be incredible. It's like, well, I think that that's something that I admire so much about what Neuralink has, what their vision is, is that they want to make this truly scalable. And Elon just has this, I don't know, crazy mindset that he can get anything done. And then it's just like, well, if they can do it with one person and use a robot to do it, then in theory, that just scales up so significantly. Well, I think that's what everybody in the field has wanted is, again, so it, it's sort of, I think, I think you could say, and I think you can argue this, but somewhere in the early 2000s, you know, the, a whole bunch of people said, uh, you know, we, we really need to, um, you know, we, we really need to apply what we've learned to, to make it possible for paralyzed people to move again. And that's what we wanted to do is create a device that there could be hundreds of thousands of people benefiting, not the whatever it is now, 20 or so people, you know, so that was the, the scaling idea has been around for, for decades. Uh, but it is really important that people who are visionaries, people who have the ability to push the field forward, enter and, and point out to the public how important it is to invest 
but not only at the commercial end because they'll you know they'll make an important commercial product i hope one day but there are many many other applications and we need a way to be able to ensure that all the potential of this field everything that's possible is done and, and right now my biggest worry is we don't have a way to accelerate the the development of devices we need more a way to sort of ensure that, uh, you know, uh, many of the ideas that people have now about using technology to cure mental health disorders, neurological disorders, that, that, that those actually come to fruition. And I think it's going too slowly now. We need, we, we need you know, 10 Neuralinks, you know, with all, all working on various applications. Neuralink has their idea. We need other people working on other applications. And there are, but most of them are in research labs. And those are important, great people, but we need, we need something to help push it faster. You know, we need something that will drive it even faster and further uh, so that more people can benefit by this. You know, we've had pharmacology for whatever, 100 years, a couple hundred years of, of using drugs to treat uh, nervous system diseases. The progress as of late, arguably, has not been as fast as we'd like it to be. But now we have a whole new domain of ways of helping people using technology. You know, it, it, actually, one of the things we used to joke about in the lab is we'd say we're in the replacement parts business. You know, the brain is broken, and we're going to build you a replacement part. Your car breaks. You know, your generator doesn't work, and so you go get a new generator. Well, you know, your motor system doesn't work. We're going to make you a new motor system that's going to be made with physical components, not with biological ones. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we are getting to know how to do that. that. We've shown that even the kind of technology we have today is good enough to really help people. I thought it'd be cool to include this as well. After we finished up, I told Dr. Donahue we'd show him the edited video prior to release, and he shared these thoughts. My biggest worry is that, uh, well, not my biggest worry, but a worry I have is that somehow when you clip things the context changes and people misinterpret it. And it's a little bit of a sensitive time, you know, that people are sensitive, you know, like I'm especially, you know, that some people think, oh, you're claiming you did this before anybody else. And, you know, I think so-and-so did it first. And I want to be clear that, you know, everything that's happened is always a group effort. You stand on the shoulders of each other in a sense. And that uh, we don't claim that we we made everything happen. We're just part of the you know the whole large enterprise of scientists and entrepreneurs and trying to move things forward. And I think it's just a matter of sometimes you inadvertently clip things and you don't understand the sensitivities in the field. And we want to make sure we we want to create this inclusive environment where people feel like they all should be communicating. They should work together. There should be a spirit of exchanging information. And I think that's, that's what we're, we're trying to create. I just want to make sure that there isn't any misconception that, that can emerge because I've been in the press a lot and sometimes people come back and say, why did you say that? You know, I said, well, I didn't think I meant that when I said it, but you know, they misunderstand. So, and it's a very important time to do that because now there's a lot of attention, you know, a lot of activity. Um, and uh, so, so we want to make sure that we, we, give a very positive message about how good all this activity is and how much, how important everybody's efforts are to, to really doing something important for people. And just a reminder, Neuropod receives no compensation from Neuralink and is not formally affiliated with Neuralink in any way. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you join us again for the next episode.